Good evening and welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. I'm joined by Aaron Bastani. How are you doing, Aaron? I'm very well, Michael. You weren't muted. I just didn't have my earpiece plugged in. Um, good, we got that sorted before we go any further. Um, today we're talking about the metaverse. What is it? Is it just a gimmick come up with by Mark Zuckerberg to distract from Facebook's current political problems? Or is it the future of, of our social lives and of the internet? We're also going to talk COP26 and China and a statement from, from Angela Rayner explaining her position on events over the past Facebook has had a troubled few years in terms of public relations. The platform was once largely known as a place to spy on people you vaguely know but kind of fancy. It then became implicated in election scandals, online radicalization, and even genocide. This year alone, the company has been subject to investigations concerning its role in January's capital riots and to leaks suggesting it knowingly deploys algorithms which damage its teenage users' mental health. Given all this, it's perhaps no surprise Mark Zuckerberg has decided it's time for a rebrand. It is time for us to adopt a new company brand to encompass everything that we do. To reflect who we are and what we hope to build, I am proud to announce that starting today, our company is now Meta. Our mission remains the same. It's still about bringing people together. Our apps and their brands, they're not changing either. And we are still the company that designs technology around people. So Facebook is now Meta, and Meta will be the parent company that owns all the apps formerly under the Facebook umbrella. So that includes Facebook itself, Instagram, and WhatsApp. But why has Mark Zuckerberg chosen that name? Well, Meta is a nod to Zuckerberg's stated intention of creating a metaverse. It's a pretty abstract concept. So to flesh it out, the company have released the following animation. So let's start by exploring what different kinds of metaverse experiences could feel like. Starting with the most important experience of all, connecting with people. Imagine you put on your glasses or headset and you're instantly in your home space. It has parts of your physical home recreated virtually. It has things that are only possible virtually. And it has an incredibly inspiring view of whatever you find most beautiful. So that was a very awkward Mark Zuckerberg walking around his home space, trying on some digital clothes. Presumably all of this will, will, will be you know, purchasable within the app. Then going into some weird VR space where he played games with all of his other avatar friends. Aaron, are you any clearer as to what a metaverse is, the significance of it after watching that video from Facebook? Well, from Meta, in fact. I kind of already was acquainted with the idea. There's a few sort of scholars who are, I think clarify thinking on this a fair bit. So one is Andrew Chadwick, who supervised my PhD, who talks about hybrid media cultures and how you shouldn't see the online and the offline as two separate spaces. The idea of media hybridity, and another person is Tiziana Terranova, who wrote a book called Network Culture. And actually, the metaverse and what's being talked about here is, is really a very logical conclusion when you look at mobile telephony, uh, digital culture, and, and how that barrier between the real world and the virtual world is kind of breaking down. Uh, so the idea that it's just a gimmick or a fad, I don't, I don't think is necessarily true. I, th I think it's thought through. There are obviously big questions about the technology and, and, and how that will look. We've had, obviously, big conversations about VR for decades and it's not gone anywhere. But the idea that the internet will play a different kind of role in everyday lives, I think is fair. I think it's quite similar to the internet of things. It's talked about sort of quite ambiguously. It's full of hucksters trying to make money, but it's also beyond any doubt that we are increasingly surrounded by connected devices sharing information with one another and with us. The metaverse, this idea that we will be increasingly immersed in digital worlds, increasingly hard to distinguish from the real world, I think, I think that's a thing. I think that's quite likely. The question is, will it become a, a general purpose technology? Will this be as big as the smartphone? Or will it be something which is just, you know, moderately interesting and, and, and still have impact? Um, good example, electric vehicles, you know, a big technology. It's going to make a, could make a huge change in terms of carbon con, uh, consumption. But, you know, it's not, a, it's not a paradigm shift away from, 
cars with combustion engines. It's just a different way of powering it. Whereas smartphones fundamentally changed our behavior, how we did things. You know, we, we do things now which would have been inconceivable to people before smartphones existed. So what is the metaverse going to be like? That's the big question. I think it's big. I think it's ambitious. I'm kind of, I'm kind of suspicious about how much leisure time we'll spend on it. But maybe we can talk about that more later. You're someone who, who follows digital cultures and stuff like that much more than me. But the, the thing that made this make a bit more sense to me to become a bit more concrete was working out you know, what hardware is involved. So basically, it seems that the metaverse includes being in virtual reality, which you, you need a big headset to do. So that'd be like gaming. Or if you wanted to have a Skype call with avatars instead of like a, a video on, on the screen, maybe trying on clothes, I'm not sure. But you'd have a massive headset or pretty big headset. So that's the kind of thing you might do in, in your house for entertainment purposes, perhaps gaming, watching movies. And then you've got augmented reality, which I think in this vision involves like a what were Google glasses. So you've got a pair of glasses where you have overlays of, of various information or imagery that's supposed to enhance your experience of the world. And I suppose why I'm a bit dubious about the metaverse is I can't really imagine ever wanting to use either of those bits of hardware. Like, I, I wouldn't want to go around the world with a pair of glasses that augment everything. And I don't think I'm keen enough on on gaming or, or you know, 3D movies to spend that much time in a virtual reality headset. Is it? Am I missing something or, or do you think this is a big deal just because lots of people will be willing to wear an augmented reality pair of glasses or, or a big virtual reality headset? It's not a moment, Michael. It's not something which will suddenly all arrive in and start doing it. Um, you know, in a way, we already live in the metaverse. Now, the technologies that are being discussed here, so the Oculus Quest 2, uh, I think Horizon Workrooms, like the platforms, the hardware is already being rolled out. We already have, you know, remote working where we're looking at screens, where we're looking at uh, project management tools in real time. The question is, like you said, do you want to do that with a headset or do you want to look, do, do that looking at a screen? So we're already entering that world. For me, Michael, I can see, for instance, how... Virtual reality adds real value to personal training. For instance, you know, Peloton now, huge company, people doing spin classes at home looking at a screen. I could see how personal trainer and you're doing calis like calisthenic training and you've got classes. I, th I could see how that would work. Or Peloton using it while you're on one of their bikes. I can see how it would be a really useful work tool um, in terms of remote working. I can see how it'd be a really useful educational tool to say to kids, hey, you know, we're going to see the pyramids and you know, it's going to augment what we're talking about in our history classes, and you'll get to talk to you know um, Norman the Conqueror or whatever. I, I could see, I can see where it adds value, and I don't mean economic value; I mean use value. Uh, often the same thing, but not always. So, education, work, yeah, gaming, and like I say, things like physical education, or for instance, um, driving instructor. Right? You can see how a company would offer really cheap driving lessons using a virtual reality headset and say, look, w w w these are a tenth of the price. Once you've done 10, it actually saves you two thirds of the money you'd spent with a regular instructor um, in the real world. It's not gonna replace the real world instructor, but it's gonna create a much cheaper path to get there and, and, and to become a qualified driver. So I, I can see applications where it's gonna make money, where it's gonna be really useful. Um, the, like I said, the question is, does that make it the new smartphone? You know, will we be, we, will we be on it all of the time? I don't think people will stop going to nightclubs or restaurants or bars or plays or the cinema to like watch this stuff in virtual space with one another. I think that's incredibly sort of dweebish. And I think that is a reflection of Zuckerberg kind of reading science fiction, which has given him this idea since before he even invented Facebook. That's a whole other topic, the extent to which the modernity being created by Silicon Valley is an outgrowth of sci-fi from the 80s, 90s, noughties. But I, I can see I can see massive areas of value creation here, Michael. You know, is it as big as artificial intelligence? No. Mobile internet? No. Internet of Things? No. But I, I do I can see how, as a technology company, Meta would do very well out of this. Yes. I mean, I think the name the name change clearly makes sense, right? Because Facebook is so tarnished. We're going to talk a bit more in in detail about that in a moment. First of all, I want to go to more how this is imagined, what uses for the metaverse are imagined. And Mark Zuckerberg gave an interview this week to blogger Ben Thompson. And I was a bit sort of surprised to, to see that 
the following seemed to be the only use for augmented reality that he, he specified in it. It wasn't particularly inspiring. Zuckerberg said, I do think that for augmented reality, for example, one of the killer use cases is basically going to be you're going to have glasses and you're going to have something like EMG on your wrist and you're going to be able to have a message thread going on when you're in the middle of a meeting or doing something else and no one else is even going to notice. So this is you know, the big innovation of aug augmented reality is that while you're in a boring conversation or a boring meeting, you can have a different chat thread going on, you know, in the corner of your, you know, your, your glass screen or whatever you call it. As I say, I'm not very good at technology. Um, Aaron, that to me just sounds kind of rude. We're all going to be here half paying attention wherever we are because we're going to be distracted by whatever chat or whatever thing is going on, whatever update is appearing in the corner of our glasses. Yeah, I mean, that, that's not new, is it, Michael? You know, the, the, the fragmenting of concentration, our capacity to concentrate, that's, again, that's just been gnawed away by social media, internet 2.0, smartphones since 2006-7. And, you know, there, there, are, there are pretty compelling theories out there in terms of what it means for mental health, ADHD, etc. Uh, if you look at levels of anxiety amongst children, for instance, it's just a correlation, but they have massively increased since, since basically the 2010s when a lot of this stuff goes mainstream. So I, I think there are clearly going to be massive mental health implications for these technologies. There already are. I wouldn't be surprised if in, you know, 30, 40 years time, this is compared to the smoking kind of lung cancer epidemic that we got after the 1950s. That's a whole separate conversation. So yes, you're right, but it's only continuing something which we already do. You know, social media as it, as it stands is is so utterly destructive for productivity. There's a reason why the Chinese Communist Party is, is banning kids from using TikTok. It's because it, it doesn't think it's in their interests to be using it more than you know a couple of hours a day. So I agree with you, but yeah, I mean, that's also an argument against where we already are. I mean, I'll give you another example of where VR might be useful. Um, you could, using the same technologies that Zuckerberg talks about in that excerpt, you would have a wearable which has your heart rate, has how much you've been sleeping, insulin levels, et cetera, et cetera, loads of medically useful data. And you would be using patient access with your GP and you'll have a bunch of options, right, Michael? You can go and see the GP, but you're gonna have to wait a week. You can have a phone call with the GP, you can do it the same day, or there might be this space in between and they say, well, look, we can have a, you can come to our Horizon workroom all, all on the Facebook platform and you can see your GP, you know, tomorrow which is kind of a halfway place between, you know, the phone consultation and the in-person one. And actually, they can glean a lot more data from your wearable than, than from what you're telling them, because you might lie or mislead or forget. So again, I, I, there are lots of applications here, Michael, education, healthcare, work. For me, the strange one is leisure. I just, I just don't understand how people are going to spend money on NFTs and virtual merch at virtual concerts. Some of that stuff's going to be the case in, in, in gaming, for instance, but the idea that this replaces offline entertainment, leisure, tourism, I'm not so sure. It reminds me a little bit of, you know, technologists in the 1960s would say, 20, 30 years from now, you won't need to eat a three-course meal. All the, the nutrition and all the flavors will be in a little pill. And actually, people quite like eating. Or, or another one is um, eBooks. Many of us have bought e-readers, and it's a huge market. Uh, but many people also still like buying books and physical magazines, less so daily newspapers, right? So that technological shift meant that the daily print newspaper as a product isn't really viable. It costs a bit of money. If you just want tittle-tattle, go on social media. But for people who want to access original insights, have a tactile, relaxing experience once a month, there's a reason why magazine sales have shot up in, in, in the last 10 to 15 years in, in, in this context of a digital culture. So new spaces are going to emerge. And I think, like I said, I've said this a few times, it's going to be, I think, big opportunities uh, and, and, and places which add real value. But the whole, that, the introduction to that, I, I thought was quite strange, you know? Oh, we're in space. Yeah, we're playing poker. It's like, this is, this is really boring. What you're doing is really boring. I'd far rather be playing card games with my friends in, in person. Yo, yeah, we're in space. Wow. And it, the person's a robot kind of childish and, and stupid. Um, but like I say, I, I still think this could make it a very, 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 very expensive company. And of course, the big, the big thing that it's imitating here is Alphabet with Google. Uh, and the idea that you know, a search engine ultimately became this technology company with interests in artificial intelligence applications, self-driving cars with Waymo. We don't need to talk about how successful any of these are going to be. Equally, Facebook now doing the same thing, WhatsApp, Instagram, 
private communications platforms, social media networks, which create value by extracting data and selling it to advertisers, but at the same time, really useful often. They're also trying to pivot into becoming a technology company. Facebook are looking at, like, like I said, the Oculus Quest headset, these Ray-Ban sunglasses, which is suit. I mean, this is really interesting, Michael. I, 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 you're sort of skeptic here. It's a bit different to Google Glass because it's not the initial product isn't saying you'll wear them and you'll have augmented reality or, or the thing that Zuckerberg was talking about. I mean, it may eventually have that, but right now the product doesn't have that. These Ray-Ban Wayfarers done with Facebook. So Luxottica is the company which owns uh, Ray-Ban. There's an Italian eyewear company, huge company. I think you can get these glasses which have a camera and you know, a, a video camera, I think for 300 pounds, where a regular pair of Wayfarers, Michael, is, is 150. So, I mean, this looks to me almost like a loss leader or what Amazon used to do with the Kindle, which is they're selling it at cost price. And I think if that, if that does happen, if they sell these things at cost price, then they're going to become very, very, very common or even mundane technologies within 10 years, which is the plan. You know, last year, Facebook spent between, you know, depends who you listen to, between 10 and $18 billion on developing this stuff in preparation for the metaverse. So it's clearly a serious proposition. The idea it's just a marketing gimmick, I, I don't think that's accurate. I would prefer the normal pair of Ray-Bans because with the camera in it, just, that's just a creepy pair of Ray-Bans from my perspective. But obviously some people, well, we don't know how many people disagree because they, they'd never have taken off potentially for that reason. Let's now look at the political context for this rebrand. I mentioned in my intro that Facebook has been subject to leaks showing it knowingly endangered the mental health of users. The source of that information was former Facebook product manager turned whistleblower Frances Horgan. Earlier this month, she gave testimony to the US Senate. I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. The company's leadership knows how to make Facebook and Instagram safer, but won't make the necessary changes because they have put their astronomical profits before people. Almost no one outside of Facebook knows what happens inside of Facebook. The company intentionally hides vital information from the public, from the US government, and from governments around the world. The algorithms are very smart in the sense that they latch onto things that people want to continue to engage with. And unfortunately, in the case of teen girls and things like self-harm, they develop these feedback cycles where children are using Instagram as to self-soothe, but then are exposed to more and more content that makes them hate themselves. The choices being made inside of Facebook are disastrous for our children, for our public safety, for our privacy, and for our democracy. That testimony described how damaging being attached to a Facebook-controlled screen can be, both for people's mental health and for a cohesive society. We might then wonder if upgrading that screen to an entire metaverse is a good idea. Luckily for those who do have their doubts, former Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg was on hand to provide reassurance. Hey, Nick. Hey, Mark. I uh, hope I'm not interrupting. You got a sec? Have you got, have you got Oppie with you? I think Oppie's still in the virtual forest, but I always have time for you. What's going on? Look, I, I just love the presentation so far. It's, it's such visionary stuff. But as you mentioned early on, with all big technological advances, there are inevitably going to be in all sorts of challenges and uncertainties. And I know you've talked about this a bit already, but people want to know how we're going to do all this in a responsible way. And especially that we play our part in helping to keep people safe and protect their privacy online. Yeah, that's right. This is incredibly important. The way I look at it is that in the past, the speed that new technologies emerged sometimes left policymakers and regulators playing catch up. So on the one hand, companies get accused of charging ahead too quickly. And on the other, tech people feel that progress can't afford to wait for the slower pace of, of regulation. And I really think that it doesn't have to be the case this time round because we have years until the metaverse we envision is fully realized. So this is the start of the journey, not the end. Like I said earlier, interoperability, open standards, privacy, and safety need to be built into the metaverse from day one. And with all the novel technologies that are being developed, everyone who's building for the metaverse should be focused on building responsibly from the beginning. This is one of the lessons that I've internalized from the last five years. It's that you really want to emphasize these principles from the start. That was one of the most stilted conversations ever committed to video. All of this just makes me feel like I do not want to enter the metaverse, but that's, that's just me. Um, Aaron, a couple of questions for you. So is this just going to be all the bad bits of Facebook like intensified because you're actually 
in that world. And second, why the hell did Mark Zuckerberg choose Nick Clegg to try and sanitize his company? There's a few things to pick apart. The first is that we're talking here about a broader technological trend. If, if VR and augmented reality does take off, obviously you'll see similar products come from Samsung and from Apple and from Huawei. And that idea of interoperability is an interesting one because Facebook isn't interested in interoperability. I'll give you an example. They've literally set up their own currency, presumably for the metaverse. Well, there's nothing more interoperable than having a currency which you can use everywhere and it's called pound sterling or dollars or yen. That's the ultimate interoperable currency within a sovereign, within a set of sovereign borders. So they're not interested in interoperability. They're, they're interested actually in creating bounded, uh, you know, informational gardens, which you can't leave. You have to go. If you want to access something, you have to use their products. Everybody has to have a Facebook account for a bunch of reasons, right? If, you, if you're trying to rent somewhere, if you want to maybe buy something, Facebook Marketplace, somebody's birthday, you need to get in touch with somebody. You generally need a, market, uh, a, a Facebook account. So are we all going to be on Facebook's metaverse or Meta's metaverse is the big question. No, because like I say, this is a broader technological trend. We all have smartphones. It doesn't mean we all use Apple iPhones. You, you have a choice in terms of the products that you use. Um, I think the bet from Zuckerberg is they want to get as much of that as possible. You know, they, they want to do to the metaverse what, what Apple originally did to the iPhone um, and to the laptop, which is a, which is a dangerous thought. And it's monopoly on a couple of on a couple of different levels, not just social networks and informational value, which they extract, not just from consumer choices, seeing what you buy, who you talk to, where you are, but also selling you the physical hardware. I mean, that's a whole new level. Amazon have tried that as well with varying degrees of success. Like I said, it's a big bet. And the idea that Nick Clegg is going to be the man to sell this to people, I can understand it from a U US context, Michael, because he's British, he's quite relaxed, he's posh. You know, as somebody who's doing sort of public affairs in the US, dealing with senators, Congress people, et cetera, I kind of understand it. I don't agree with it, obviously. There was an interesting tweet recently from Dominic Cummings, wasn't there? And he was saying, look, you've got legacy media, you know, you've got News International, you've got all the big media companies from pre-internet media companies who are still around coming after you. You've got increasingly the political class coming after you. You've got a lot of vested interests coming after you, basically, at Facebook. And you've got this no-hope of representing you in terms of external affairs with Nick Clegg. I, I think he's probably right. I suppose the response to that is, well, if you had a sort of more belligerent, bullish person, I suppose Cummings is almost asking for the job, isn't he? You know, would that necessarily help them? And look, Facebook is still, is still doing okay. It's still taking tens of billions of pounds worth of profit. In the digital era, to have a company going at the top of its game 15 years, I think it's almost got what? Almost... Facebook's or Meta's products now have, I think, almost 3 billion daily users worldwide. People are presenting this as, oh, it's a, it's a failing company. If that's a failing company, wow, okay, fair enough. Uh, like I said, they're investing about 10 billion plus just in these technologies every year. The idea, oh, well, Nick Clegg shows that it's, it's all at sea, it's going nowhere. No, I don't necessarily buy that. Maybe, you know, it, there's an argument to say a current affairs person who comes across as quite useless and harmless, that, that maybe is a, is a isn't a bad thing. I think he's clearly a supreme opportunist. He doesn't believe in anything. Um, I think he reflects very poorly on the British political class. But if they got somebody else, I mean, would that be in Zuckerberg's interest? I don't know. I think the, the sort of the great counterpoint to Facebook is probably Uber, who had, a pro had an approach of, we don't care about the regulators. Fuck you. We're going to disrupt. We're going to break things up. There's nothing you can do about it. And actually elected governments around the world and cities and regions, nation states, said, well, actually, no, we can uh, and you can see there's clearly a change in tack from Facebook after that. And they're, they're almost, they're engaging with the criticisms of, met of the metaverse before it's even arrived. Yes, there are huge problems with Facebook. There are huge problems with social media companies, which are now being increasingly well documented. We knew this for a long time, Michael. And the reason why nothing happened isn't just because all oh, the companies themselves are bad. It's because politicians decided not to regulate them properly. Politicians decided the market always knows best. Technology and innovation can't be stopped by, you know, a big state. So it's better if we just get out of the way. And the idea that there could be massive downsides by doing that was generally ignored, I think, until the last few years. And a good comparison here, I think, is, um, is wind turbines, onshore wind, which is much cheaper than offshore wind. You don't see many onshore wind turbines because politicians and certain people in the media made it a really... Hot, a political hot potato 
So they didn't really happen. They've not really been built. And then when it comes to things like Facebook and Instagram, what's up? Well, we can't get involved. So I think, yes, of course, you want to blame Zuckerberg and Facebook to an extent. And of course, the liberals, they love doing that. But I think that takes a little bit of heat and accountability and scrutiny away from people that also matter, Michael. And that's elected politicians. That's state regulators. You know, we should have been having a proper conversation around this in Facebook five, 10 years ago. We didn't because the political class was in bed with them, particularly in this country. So, of course, I don't like Nick Clegg. I don't like Mark Zuckerberg. But it, it also reflects a, a complete failure of regulation, which was kind of like this capitalist realism thing, which has only really disintegrated since 2016. I think China's so ascendant. Trump wins in 2016. Brexit. I think politicians and, and the political elite have sort of taken a step back and say, actually, maybe we do sometimes need to do stuff. You know, maybe the market isn't always right because that means people like Donald Trump become president and me and my mates don't get to run things anymore. So, yeah, I, I blame both sides, Michael. I'm going to both sides this one for once. <laughs> I mean, they made, a, they made a lot. It's especially in the States, right, where Facebook's become highly politicized because of Trump and then the Democrats deciding that Facebook was, I mean, to, working to their detriment, I suppose. Let's see what you guys think in terms of our audience on our community page. We asked you whether you think the metaverse is a gimmick or the future of social interaction. We had 835 votes. 77% of you think it's a gimmick and only 9% think it's the future and Grund Reese factory with a fiver. Will the real world just become so miserable and unaffordable for many people that they do invest in a virtual world? I've seen lots of people sort of, you know, suggesting this could be possible. Is it the metaverse is the opium of the masses? So, I mean, I, I thought that actually when you saw Mark Zuckerberg go into his fake virtual reality house, the thing that that made me think of is that most people going into that virtual reality house, he probably has a really nice flat anyway. Most people, they're flat, tiny, small, They'd like it to be much bigger. They can go into this virtual reality space and then look out to the sea in what looks like a super big flat. I mean, I don't find that attractive. I'm, I'm not that convinced it will become a particularly effective opium of the masses, but it's you know, entirely possible. Next story. This Monday, COP26 begins in Glasgow. The conference will bring together leaders and negotiators from every member state of the UN with the goal to commit participants to CO2 reductions sufficient to avoid catastrophic climate change. Yet while there will be 193 countries in attendance, one has been subjected to more scrutiny than any other. China. And this week, The Spectator shows the manner in which the world's largest nation state is being portrayed. You can see here Boris Johnson putting all his effort into saving the planet with Biden making a tepid effort in the same direction. That's contrasted with Xi Jinping alongside Vladimir Putin, essentially holding the whole world hostage. Of course, the focus on China isn't entirely unreasonable. It is the world's largest emitter of greenhouse gases and its nationally determined contributions announced on Thursday have been deemed disappointing by experts, including from Greenpeace Asia. However, in an excellent piece currently up on the Navarra Media website, Aaron Bastani argues that China's role in climate mitigation is actually far more complex. Aaron, it's a very timely piece. Can you lay out the key points? Yeah, for sure. So China, like you said, is the world's number one emitter, and that's because it's got 1.4 billion people. On a per-person basis, its CO2 output isn't that high. It's about 38th in the world. The US produces twice as much CO2 per person as does Australia, as does Canada. Qatar produces about four times more CO2 per person. Of course, Qatar not a particularly big country, but it's quite interesting that three of the four big Anglophone countries produce twice as much CO2 as China, and yet we're not talking about them as the bad guys. Interestingly enough, Canada and Australia, between them, don't have a single kilometer of high-speed rail. Not a single kilometer. Meanwhile, China has two-thirds of all global high-speed rail capacity. So two-thirds of all high-speed rail capacity worldwide, two-thirds of it's in China, and it's going to be doubling that, its extant capacity, over the next 20 years. Uh, the US has less high-speed rail than Uzbekistan, and very soon it's going to be taken over by Iran. Uh, these are big countries, and you know China has taken really big steps to take on domestic internal flights, domestic aviation, with its high-speed rail network. Nothing similar is happening in Australia, Canada, the United States. Russia's a little bit better, but not great. So you've got, actually, on a per-person basis, quite low carbon emissions. Then you've got the fact that wealthier countries outsource carbon emissions to poorer countries. So China produces about 30% of all manufactured goods worldwide. 
Of course, a manufactured good has these outsourced emissions, which is to say that if an uh, iPhone is produced in China, but it's used by Michael Walker here in London, the CO2 emissions for its production go on the Chinese ledger, not the UK one. Now, it's estimated that global CO2 emissions, about 25% of global CO2 emissions, operate in this way. So that actually uh, casts the global north in a better light and countries like China in a worse light. Like I said, China by far the world's largest manufacturer. So that's a major, major factor why China's CO2 emissions are relatively high. But like I say, still only half per person where the US is, 38th in the world, next to somewhere like Norway. So you've got, like I say, actually not that bad on a per person basis. You've got the fact that it's internalizing manufactured uh, product CO2 emissions, which are being consumed elsewhere. Uh, and then you've got other things like reforestation. You know, in the, in the early 1990s, 12% of China was covered by forests. Today, it's around 23%. It's looking to get that to 30% by 2050. You've got, like I said earlier, high-speed rail, urban transit systems being built in dozens of cities in China. Meanwhile, in the US, they haven't laid a single kilometer of, of underground transit for 30 years in, main, in the mainland US. You've got issue after issue after issue, which I think, you know, actually on, on any sort of fair basis, China would be judged as a, as, a, as a leader when it comes to climate change. Then finally, if you look at its actual record on renewable energy, I think this is the, the icing on the cake. China produces, has a greater solar energy capacity. So it doesn't necessarily produce more solar because it's dependent upon the sun shining, but it has more solar capacity than the US and Europe combined. It's world number one in regards to wind capacity. It's increased nuclear capacity by 500% since 2010. It's world number one on hydroelectric capacity. And it's also got huge plans again for the next 10 years. And again, all that really on wind, on solar, on nuclear, all of that is since the 2010s. You know, it didn't lay a single kilometer of high-speed rail until 2007, Michael. And when you look what the Europeans have been doing since 2007, you think of the European debt crisis, et cetera, how little infrastructure has been built, how little you know, renewable capacity has really been built. Compare that to what the Chinese are doing. We're, we're nowhere, Michael, whether it's the Europeans, whether it's the, the North Americans, whether it's the Australians, the Brits, you really can't compare us to China. Now, that doesn't mean China is saving the world. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying that. And, and what's quite clear is that any economy based upon economic growth with 1.4 billion people like China, which is looking to become much wealthier in the coming decades, is going to massively impact CO2 emissions and levels of CO2 in the atmosphere, which is going, to, is going to lead to a warmer planet. But if we're talking about a large country, which is actually making an effort when it comes to climate change, on green energy, on reforestation, on uh, high-speed rail and moving away from aviation, China is far and away ahead of the Western nations. And this is something they will not accept. And so what we'll see at COP over the next couple of weeks is xenophobia, And that rests upon ignorance uh, with Western audiences to basically think, well, the Chinese, they're stupid. They're not white. Uh, they're not the West. They're burning coal. They are. They burn a huge amount of coal, but it's also 1.4 billion people. And the new coal power stations that China is going to build, are go and there's dozens of China uh, power stations that are going to be built with coal, dozens. But again, it's 1.4 billion people, Michael. It's three times the population of the European Union. It's only going to add 1.5% to China's extant carbon emissions. So the numbers we're talking about here are huge. You know, every year between now and 2025, they're looking to reforest the surface area the size of Belgium. So a bit of nuance is required. And actually, when you really get beneath the sort of fog perpetuated by Western press, who are being very hostile to Beijing, I think, for geopolitical reasons, then, like I say, it, it's pretty clear where leadership is, if it's anywhere. It's not Washington. It's not Brussels. It's not London. It's Beijing. Let's look in a bit more detail about um, China's NDC. So, so for background, how these climate negotiations work since the Paris Agreement is that there are no binding commitments that any country has to make. It's not the case where, you know, back in the days of the Kyoto Protocol, there were some, some ideas that people would allot a sort of set carbon budget for each country. They'd have to agree what the, what the algorithm would be that would work that out, and then they'd all be limited by law to that. That turned out to be a dead end. No country would agree to it, or at least no big powerful country would agree to it. Now what you get is countries coming forward and voluntarily committing to reduce their emissions. And it's sort of based on, on peer pressure, essentially. China submitted theirs on Thursday. Their NDC it was much awaited. This is a summary of what they've committed to as per the FT. 
Um, so it says, China aims to have CO2 emissions peak before 2030 and achieve carbon neutrality before 2060 to lower CO2 emissions per unit of GDP by over 65% from the 2005 level to increase the share of non-fossil fuels in primary energy consumption to around 25% to increase the forest stock volume by 6 billion cubic meters from the 2005 level and to bring its total installed capacity of wind and solar power to over 1.2 billion kilowatts by 2030. Now, in terms of analysis of that, the most common thing I've heard from, from climate experts or China watchers is, it, is that they're disappointed about um, this idea that emissions will only peak by 2030. Lots of people suggesting 2025 was very much doable for the Chinese, and so they could have come forward with that. A counter to that is that Xi Jinping doesn't want to commit China to anything. There's a chance in hell they won't meet. So even though they've said before 2030, it could still be the case that they end up managing to peak emissions by 2025. Of course, as guests like Sam Gyal, who we've had on this show, have, have argued or explained, I suppose, China is also a country with internal politics. So there is, there is a coal lobby in China, just as there is a coal lobby in the United States. You know, Joe Biden's going to arrive and he might potentially make a fairly ambitious proposal when it comes to to US emissions reductions. I mean he already has. It'll be, you know, it'll be confirmed there. But he's really going to struggle to implement his climate policy because Congress is now blocking any kind of carbon tax on on the coal industry. So it could be the case that you get to COP, America commits to something really ambitious, climate China um, commits to something far less ambitious, but ultimately China can follow through on theirs, whereas the Americans, because of their political system, are completely unable to. How likely do you think that scenario is? I mean, I, I, I would dispute the idea that China would be committing to anything less ambitious than the US. From what we've seen so far, I mean, maybe this is going to change, but both are talking about net, net zero by 2060. And when you think that the US has a GDP per capita about six times that of China, that's a remarkable achievement by China. This is a country, I think, $10,000 per head GDP, US about $60,000. So far wealthier country. And actually, China is eliminating poverty. You can go between 1990 and 2060, they would have taken 800 million people out of poverty, and they would have effectively decarbonized. 80% of their energy supply would have been decarbonized. That's what they're talking about, net zero, not 100% decarbonization. That's not good, by the way, but I'm just, that's, they're both talking about net zero. It's not just China. Do that in the space of 70 years is remarkable, Michael. And there's, there's absolutely no comparison. You can maybe talk about post-war social democracy in Europe, maybe getting a little bit close, but I, I don't think it does actually. In terms of a political, economic, technological, ecological revolution of a country in 70 years, in a lifetime, that's extraordinary. So I, I don't think the US is making bigger, uh, sort of has bigger sort of plans than China. No. It talks about reforestation. You know, it's gone from 12% of the country's surface area to 23%. They wanted to get to 30%. The US has been standing still, Michael. And the US is a very large country, extraordinarily large country. And, and, and reforestation isn't, isn't the answer to everything. There's actually a great criticism of reforestation, indigenous land rights, colonialism, um, et cetera. You know, if you're Britain, you're not going to be reforesting uh, somewhere in Britain, although we obviously should do that. It, you know, increasingly what you'll do is you'll be, there'll be a market for this stuff and you'll pay for a carbon sink somewhere in the Amazon. And so people that live on that land will be moved out and they'll grow a forest. And that means, oh, we can burn more carbon over here. This is stuff that we'll be talking about at COP. Um, so the offset thing in terms of reforestation, why you still burn carbon uh, fuels is why they're talking about net zero. Big difference is, Michael, Ch China's serious about this because it's actually doing the rewilding thing. It's doing the reforestation thing. So I agree with you that the political system in America is a big barrier to them acting as decisive as the Chinese, but I disagree that it's in any way more ambitious on their part. I just simply don't think that's true. I suppose I just mean, so the targets I've got in, in front of me, they're saying they're going to halve emissions compared to 2005. Everyone picks whenever their peak was. So ours is compared to 1990 because that's when our peak was. Mm -hmm. So they want to halve emissions by 2030 compared to 2005 and go to net zero no later than 2050. So it is, you know, the, the cuts by which date are more ambitious, but obviously they're starting from a much, you know, their historic contribution to, to yeah. carbon emissions is much bigger than China. And on a per capita basis, they're much richer. I mean, so there's a few points. So if it's net, if it's net zero by 2050, then that's a big difference with China, which is net zero by 2060. I mean, let's see what, what comes out in the wash. And again, net zero is quite a flexible term. UK is now aiming for net zero. Really, the UK could decarbonize. Forget net zero, we could decarbonize by 2035. Corbyn was saying 2030. I thought 2035 is entirely plausible. Um, so there's that point. Yes, that would be a big 
uh, a big difference. But Michael, if you look at China's looking now at peak carbon, so it's basically going to hopefully reach peak emissions before 2030. Like I say, when it's a country which is one sixth as wealthy as the United States, remarkable achievement. Really, really remarkable if they can do that. Uh, and the problem we have, Michael, in the Western media is if you say this, it's just an observation. If they do that, it's impressive. Oh my God, why do you hate this country so much? Who told you that? Has it been corroborated? Well, actually, yes. NASA two years ago said that the planet today is greener than it was in the 1990s because of reforestation efforts by India and China. So yes, we, we do have independent observers verifying this stuff. I think reaching peak carbon, when you've got a GDP per capita at the same level as Romania, when you've got the geopolitical ambitions that China does have, I think that's big. I think that's huge. Yes, China is not going to massively reduce domestic economic growth and push back its geopolitical ambitions in order to decarbonize even more quickly than it already is. Of course, but this is the world we live in. And when, like I say, when you're doing a sort of comparative analysis of China to the US or China to Russia or you know, China to Brazil, Christ, it's far and away ahead, particularly in context. I mean, it, this has become a real meme, hasn't it, of, of the right. There's real backlash, which is to say um, any, any action that we take on climate is pointless because actually the responsibility is just with China and India. We should go on as normal. There's no point if these big, poor countries don't do something first. Yeah, so Britain is about 1% of global CO2 emissions. China is about 30% of global CO2 emissions. And, and, and that is because of the size of its population. I mean, that point certainly isn't true for the US, Michael. That's very important to say. They can't make that argument. But yeah, countries in the EU, you know, you see it with the true Finns, or they're just called the Finns now in Finland. You see it with far-right parties in smaller European countries, particularly in Scandinavia. They say, look, we can't change, or Poland, we, we can't change very much, so we're just going to keep on burning fossil fuels. Obviously, the world is comprised of uh, 200 nation states. So that's obviously a silly argument. It's a collective action argument. It's like saying, I won't do X because it's not going to change every, anything because not everybody's doing it. Well, you know, if that was the case and collective action is, is literally impossible. And we know that's not the case because it happens all the time. Sometimes involuntary, but often through voluntary action. So yeah, it's a really daft take. And what's happened with the far right, Michael, they've gone from outright climate denial, saying climate change doesn't exist to yes, it does exist, but actually we can't do much about it. And that is something that you see with, you know, the far right party in, in the Netherlands, you see it with the Finns in Finland, you see it with the far right in Poland, you see it with the Swedish Democrats in Sweden, you see it with the Front National, or what they're called now, Reassemblement National um, in, in, in France. And it's a change. Uh, but at the same time, Michael, you know, there are also people in this country, or the US, pro progressives, who say, oh, climate change is, th is a thing, we have to do something about it, and then they don't do anything about it. You know, Barack Obama's tweeting about how we got to stop climate change. This guy was talking at meetings in 2018 to oil company executives saying, I saved when the US became the world's largest energy exporter briefly. That was because of me, because of this fracking revolution. You should be more grateful. So there's a nice proverb in Chinese, Michael, which is to know and not do is not to know, which is to say, if you know something, but you still don't do it, you might as well be ignorant in the first place because you're not actually acting on the information at hand. And that's where I see a lot of Western progressives on climate change. Sadiq Khan, we're going to become this green city, but we're still going to build the Silvertown Tunnel for a couple of billion pounds. Okay. You know, but you're not doing so effectively, you don't know. Um, let's go to our final story. Angela Rayner has kept a pretty low profile since she sparked controversy at Labour conference by calling the Tories scum. This Thursday, she released a statement explaining what has been going on and reflecting on those comments. So she wrote in a Facebook post, I have been off work over the last couple of weeks after losing a close loved one. Grief is the burden we bear for love and losing someone close is something that we all experience at some point in our lives, but that knowledge doesn't make it any easier when it happens to you. So I can't imagine what the family of Sir David Amos are going through, but I know they will be hurting. I send my heartfelt condolences to them. She goes on, while I have been away from the cut and thrust of Parliament, I have reflected on our political debate and the threats and abuse that now seem to feature all too often. I have also reflected on what I said at an event at Labour Party conference. I was angry about where our country is headed and policies that have made life harder for so many people I represent. But I would like to unreservedly apologise for the language I used and I would not use it again. 
Angela Rayner also spoke about recent threats she has received, which was so serious, a man has been sentenced to 100 hours of community service and been made subject to a restraining order. Angela Rayner wrote, I want to address the threats I have received recently. In the past, I have been reluctant to speak out about the abuse that I received because I fear that doing so will only make the situation worse. However, in recent weeks, the threats that I have received against my life and the lives of close family have been so terrifying and explicit that I could not stay silent and simply continue to take it as part of the job. They have had a devastating impact on me, my children and others close to me. It shakes you when you get these threats. You worry about the safety of your home, your office and everything in your life, and it takes its toll on the people who work for me too. In her statement, Rayner also thanked officers from Greater Manchester, South Yorkshire and Cambridgeshire police, who she said had arrested a number of people in recent days and demonstrated the utmost professionalism, courtesy and kindness when doing so. Um, Aaron, it sounds like it has been a pretty intense, incredibly difficult few weeks for, for Angela Rayner. What did you make of her, her statement? And I suppose, you know, especially the apology for calling the Tories scum. It was a recording of her speaking at a private meeting. She hadn't said it publicly to start with. It's not, it wasn't a public declaration. She didn't say it on television. It wasn't to the newspapers. She was recorded saying something that she now says she'd rather wish she hadn't said. Fine. Then it was blown out of all proportion. I'm sure, I'm sure in private meetings, Tories and Labour politicians say all sorts of things. You know, the, the problem was she was caught. She was talking to a group of 20 people in a room. Would I, I don't call people scum. I think scum's a horrible word, actually. I think it's a dehumanizing word. Scumbag? Yeah, maybe. You know, scumbag's a bit different. Maybe. Again, this comes down to personal preference. It does feel like she's probably issued an, an apology. Hey, look, maybe she has because of the David Amos stuff and the, the, the death of her loved one, et cetera. But it also feels like, and again, again, why, why bother speculating? Has she been told to do this by Starmer, et cetera? Probably. Um, and, and is it political? Yes, probably, because she's a politician. Um, and it's probably in her best interest to apologize. Should you apologize for things you say privately, which aren't that nasty? Then every politician would be apologizing all the time. I think she should just say, yeah, I wouldn't say it publicly. I said it privately, probably about out of order. My apologies. Okay, let's move on. And she should have said that the day she was caught. And that's what I would have said. This is what happens. Again, this is the British media's coverage of politics. It's just, just, it's just obsessed with pure vacuity. Does any serious person believe that the, the, the person that uh, killed David Amos was in any way inspired by what Angela Rayner said? Pathetic. It's just utterly absurd. If a Tory, if a Tory was caught calling... Labour people scum, and, and the exact same thing happened. I honestly would forget about it the next day. But because we have this puerile, vacuous media, which is just obsessed with trivialities, and of course, the Tories play with it on easy mode, while the left has to play on the most difficult mode possible, you know, this is where we end up. We have these conversations. And months after the fact, Angela Rayner feels compelled to give an apology for it. Okay, if she feels she has to apologise, fine. But the fact it's a story, after all this time, I think reveals quite a lot about our media culture, and it's not good, it's not healthy. Now, I suppose the difference is, in a way, you know, because you said if, if someone on the right called the left scum, etc. I mean, they did do that for, you know, the whole time that Jeremy Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party, tried to, you know, completely demonise him. And I suppose the difference between this and that is that, you know, when there was an attack on a Labour MP who, you know, tragically died, Joe Cox, that was by someone on the right, that was by someone on the far right. So the politics that, that, mm. that do seep into the more extreme elements of the Conservative Party, whereas the person who killed David, David Amos, again, completely tragic, it seems like he was an extremist Islamist, it had nothing to do with Angela Rayner or Angela Rayner's critiques of David Amos or, or any Tory. You know, so it, it does seem, while again, I, I probably, you know, if I was an elected politician, I probably wouldn't call the other guys scum. I don't think it's helpful in mm. elections. It's the kind of thing that's going to drag down all of these conversations when you want to be talking about something that's much more interesting and relevant to people's, to people's lives. But at the same time, there just isn't the same connection between language that people on the left use and physical violence as there is on the right. And, and that does seem what? to be something that the media hasn't quite grasped and, and admitted to itself. They're not going to grasp it. I mean, like I say, you're dealing with some of the most trivial, sort of terrifyingly dull people you're ever going to meet. You know, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a broken record on this, Michael, but you know, they were calling Jeremy Corbyn every possible name for years, for years. And this was a man who was attacked. This was a man who uh, a white supremacist did want to kill. You know, he did kill somebody else in a terrorist attack. Darren Osborne, who, who did kill somebody, he wants to kill Sadiq Khan and Jeremy Corbyn. Um, and yet, you know, it's carte blanche from the media. You can call this chap what you want. You can make up things. You know, you can call him a, a, 
James O'Brien called Labour Party members Holocaust deniers, Michael, including Jewish ones. If we're going to talk about respect, Jesus Christ, let's start with people like that. And he was saying it publicly, Michael. Angela Rayner said it privately and was caught. Cool. I just find the whole thing absolutely absurd. And look, here at Navarra Media, we were, we were described by the uh, New York Times this week as wonky, unapologetically left, but wonky. You know, our detractors talk about us being like alt-left and Breitbart. We talk about policy. I think anybody going over the last hour of tonight's show, what we're talking about Meta and China in the context of climate change and energy transition, you might not agree, you might agree, but I don't think anybody thinks we're the Darren Grimes of the left. I hear this all the time. It's just pathetic. It's pathetic. And it comes from the top, Michael. It comes from the top. Because fundamentally, political journalism in this country is treated as a hobby amongst a bunch of people. The fact that it was important to large numbers of people through both Brexit and also Corbynism and also Scottish independence, these were issues which made politics more than just show business for ugly people, as the quote goes, but actually something which millions of people viewed themselves as playing a part within. And for the, for the commentariat, and for the political media elite on this stuff, they hate it. They find it intolerable. They want it to go back to a, a sort of a hobby that kind of dweebs find interesting and the rest of the public kind of can't really make sense of. That's what they want. People like Robert Peston and so on, that's what they want. That's how they view politics. And Corbynism, Scottish nationalism, Brexit, pierced that veneer uh, for a brief moment. I mean, it still might. You know, Corbynism has an afterlife. We, have, we may have a second referendum on Scotland. Brexit hasn't gone away. For me, the big takeaway from this story, Michael, is just the sort of puerility and vacuity of the British media, which isn't going away. And it's something we really need to think about on the left, you know, and if we have left leaders in the next five, 10 years, they can't make this, the sorts of mistakes that Angela Rayner made there. I mean, for me, it shows bad political judgment to be saying that sort of thing at conference. I, I, don't, I don't think she should apologize for it personally, because it was a private conversation, or if she, if she should apologize in the manner I sort of described earlier. I don't think it's a big deal. But look, look what happens to Jeremy Corbyn. And so you're really going to have to be on your best behavior. And you're really going to have to operate at a, a very, very high level politically. And that's not easy, Michael. I don't say that as, as, as somebody who thinks I could do it. You know, I definitely couldn't. I wouldn't want to do it, by the way. I like being honest about what I think. But the level at which left politicians are treated and the easy ride that Tories get by comparison has to be instructive the next time uh, that the left controls the Labour Party. Could be a while, hopefully sooner rather than later. Let's wrap up tonight. Thank you, everyone, for joining us and for your super chats. Uh, our massive thank you if you are regular donors you are who makes this show this organization possible Aaron Bastani pleasure speaking to you as ever on a Friday night my pleasure Michael you go grab yourself a beer thank you I, I probably will you've been watching Tiski Sal we'll be back on Monday at 7pm good night this broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media go to navaramedia.com slash support